Welcome to Useful Outsiders, a monthly podcast series brought to you by the Council for International Development. Kia ora koutou, welcome to episode 7. This month we have Ian McInnes from Tear Fund, Linabel Hadley from CBM and Michael Hartfield from Anglican Missions speaking with Erin Davey from the Council for International Development. It's a fascinating discussion that looks at faith and religion in international development and humanitarian response and challenges some of the assumptions people might hold. The speakers talk candidly about their organisation's relationships with faith as well as their own personal journeys. It's a huge topic with many interesting angles to explore, so we'd love to continue the discussion in future episodes. We hope you enjoy it. Hi everyone, this discussion was initiated by the fact that many of our members um, are faith-based and in a recent survey, 35% of our membership identified as being a faith-based organisation. One of the things that we've also felt um, in our work is there appears to be a lot of assumptions about faith-based organisations both from the role of religion within the organisation and also how individuals working for those organisations incorporate faith or their religious belief into their work. Certainly at Council for International Development, we felt there was often a sense of faith being a, a dirty word for a lack of a better phrase, or at least it gets treated rather coyly or excluded in some of the development conversations that we have. So we'd like to welcome everyone today and um, let's start demystifying um, faith-based organisations. So thinking about the role of faith uh, or religious practice in engaging with organisations and partners in the field, I wondered, um, Ian, if you can sort of tell us how that works at Tear Fund. Yeah, absolutely. I think the role of faith, I think it just provides for us at Tear Fund a common platform, if you like, with partners, whatever their faith and Of course, in many of the countries in which we work, faith is dominant, maybe one, maybe a number of faiths, um, but they would be less secular, say, than um, the West, if you like, or or the North. Um, And I guess it enables us to incorporate things like like hope, courage, love, prayer. You know, um, these things are are things that people cling to, you know, in search of a better future. And so I guess it at its core, um, the role of faith um, in development for me, uh, uh, yeah, is that common platform to talk about those things we care um, deepest about in life. Thanks, Ian. Would this be the case for you at CBM as well, Linabel? How, how does CBM incorporate faith into the work that you do in terms of development and emergency response? Absolutely, Aaron. Um, we need to um, acknowledge that um, a lot of the the humanitarian programs that we have in the fields, even though we have our frontline staff, our country office and technical teams working with our partners, uh, most of the resourcing is coming from uh, members that are in um, the developing world, in developed world. And in New Zealand, it is extraordinary to see the um, support that a lot of the um, people that are our supporters have a faith um, motivation, and their uh, their support is really engine and and allowing the implementation. This is also the case for the space of advocacy, in where a lot of the uh, progress of many of the aspects in the humanitarian uh, debate have a uh, progress, such as disability inclusion 
uh, gender and other, and other very important areas to uh, make best practice in the humanitarian field. Um, how about at um, Anglican Mission, uh, Michael? What's the role of faith and religious practice in terms of engaging with organisations and partners in the field? Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I would go along with what um, Lena and Ian have already said, but I guess a, a lot of the focus of Anglican Missions is on the Pacific, especially the Southwest Pacific, where the church has a very prominent role anyway. So um, it, in a way, we are kind of... Um, uh, building on what is already there and what is already very open and what is already practiced in a very strong way. And so it's kind of, I guess what we can provide them is a more of a holistic approach, which is not just implementing the activities, but also because often our partners on the ground at churches, which are often the centre of any village, um, it can then be kind of um, that pastoral sort of side can also be added or the spiritual side can also be added. So for us, it's just a fundamental part of who we are and what we do. Particularly for those that um, you know don't come from a faith background, there might be a incorrect assumption that faith or religion, you know, for an individual at least, can be um, compartmentalized. Are there any spaces where faith and religion is considered less relevant to your work or to the work of your organisation, or where um, expressions of faith need to be uh, curtailed or left off the table, so to speak? It's it's not for me that religion is, say, less relevant in any context. Religion speaks to perhaps almost every element of people's, mm. people's lives. Um, it's perhaps the extent to which we, we all agree, whatever our faith on the actions you know, and the outcomes we, we want to see. And in that case, we shouldn't have to defend those through a faith lens. So, for example, we might all agree you know, that the exploitation of people in human trafficking is simply wrong or mothers and young children should have expanded access to healthcare. Every household should be able to put food on the table. So in one sense, there's less need to defend that through um, a religious lens. But if you know, if you ask me whether religion should speak to that, well, of course it does. Um, every religion does have things to say about, about those sorts of things. So I guess my starting point on that question is everybody has a faith framework, even if it's grounded in the secular humanities. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes a bit of faith to believe in humanity's goodness and, and the search for the common good, for example, over over the resident evil <laughs> we see in this planet, you know, and not everybody believes in that from a secular standpoint. You know, some do, some don't. Not everyone believes in it from a faith standpoint. Some do, some don't because of how they interpret their religious texts or what they're being taught. So I guess, yeah, I guess my starting point is it's, yeah, it's an incorrect assumption that you can compartmentalise faith because it speaks to every element of life but you shouldn't need to bring bring faith like a bulldozer to the converse, to the basic conversations of common good and humanity and, and about how is that um at cbm um are there places where uh the faith conversation is less relevant the faith conversation is uh essential in our programs and it's always in the center um it is in the center in terms of um, the, of the approach, in terms of the values that we are bringing in. However, the way that we can translate some of those values into the implementation, that is where we have a different um, language, if you, if you um, want to say like that. And this is because every program, we are working with a partner, we are working in a specific um, legislative context as well. 
and we are meeting minimum standards in for which all of them we have uh, indicators. And this is how we can monitor and take track of them. It is important to um, understand that um, in some areas where we are working, in some contexts where the, um, the crisis or the humanitarian crisis are not um, countries that have uh, Christian majorities. Therefore, our partners and our um, beneficiaries as well are not Christian community. And therefore, we, it is, um, the, the language may not be coming in that way as it's implemented, but that doesn't mean that it, it doesn't come with the same faith and with the same principles, as in our teachings is within the compassion, with the uh, example, and with going towards the Samaritan helping as well. So this is the way we consider and keep alive our faith-based values, even in settings where we are uh, quite remote to those uh, cultural expressions. Well, thank you, Lenabel. And from you, Michael? I guess just the one other thing I would add is that it's, for example, when, when we're responding and when other faith-based agencies are responding to an emergency or an event, our response is based on need and those most in need. And so I guess in that regard, Aaron, in answer to your question, that is when we do just leave. I mean, while our faith undergirds all that we do, um, it's our response is um, completely neutral um, because it's based on need. So I guess that's an example where you do where you where you do see that completely neutral, um, neutral work. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Linabel, going back to your um, your point that, you know, talking about some of the best practice or minimum standards, um, it's mindful to sort of remember that, you know, faith-based organisations adhere to those standards in the same way that any other organisation does and in many contexts has led the way in creating some of those standards as well. I just wondered, Linabel, from your experience at CBM, what are some of the ways that your organisation separates faith-based activities from, say, your development emergency response activities, particularly as it might relate to donations um, or reporting or the, let's call it the, the administrative side of things? Yes, for example, when we are sharing an emergency response program with our donors and we go for an appeal, we always look for our supporters and engage both on terms of their um, support for, for the team that is preparing in terms of the, uh, our prayer diary and, uh, on the, and that uh, emotional support, the prayers request for the team for, in country, for the people facing the, the disasters. But we are also putting out there the practical ways in that people can do contribution to support the crisis at the moment. And we always put at least three to five specific gifts that people can share for uh, a specific outcome. For example, it could be uh, food distribution. It could be um, assistive device replacement that have been lost in a disaster or could be access to a health service that is needed urgently. And therefore, when the support comes for those specific gifts, we are able to provide um, our programmatic um, flow to, to implement these programs, to monitor the programs, and to have a very, uh, a very strong uh, reporting back 
to the donations and of course to what is the outcome of the programs. So there is always um, these kind of uh, systems in where we can um, bring into much more separation. But I I know that in, in countries where some of the partners could be having faith base, as we have particularly in the Pacific, and some of the partners in Africa, if they are not faith-based, and some of the team are still faith-based, and the um, and the values are still there, and they are translated even when there is not a faith-based into the approach and into the quality of the of the implementation. Thank you. And, and Ian, um, from your experience at TFM, how do you uh, maintain that separation and sort of the the administration and the operations and, and the programming? Yeah, I think it's, again, it's less a separation and it's more sort of a proportionality, just being respectful and mindful of the context um, in when, which we're operating in. Sort of as Linabel said, people carry their faith and they wear it. You know, it is who they are, it informs their ethics, it informs their um, their view um, of the world. But, you, but if you walk into a community that's disaster struck, you can misuse religion like you can misuse anything. And in my time in disaster, I've seen the people of Haiti condemned for their own earthquake because of their faith. I've seen, you know, I've seen people in the Indian Ocean tsunami, you know, told that the destruction wrought around the coast in Sri Lanka was because of the the sins of the coast, people who live on the coast. So that's to misuse religion um, in an appalling way. Um, You know, a, a far better approach is to, have your faith and form your convictions in, in, in the good you want to do in the world. So we're reasonably explicit with donors in, in a language they would understand and um, with Christian texts at times because that's their motivation for giving for many of them. Now, when it comes to the work on the ground, if you've got a disaster to respond to, that is very practical stuff. Um, but again, like Linabel and like others have said, once you get into the Pacific, you know, and say the churches double as the disaster facilities, you know, are we going to stop people praying when they enter the church and disasters struck and that's what gives brings them comfort and hope? Well, of course we, of course we aren't, you know. Um, and yet, um, at the same time, we haven't specifically targeted the church. We're there for everyone in society. The church happens to be the centre of society and it happens to be a wonderful place to displace to and provide sanctuary. And I've seen it in conflict and war as well. Again, Sri Lanka... Uh, and in other places where churches double as, you know, the last place of refuge for civilians on fleeing. And so can mosques and temples. It's a very important function they serve um, at at those times. And to stay away from them or exclude them would be quite inappropriate. Yeah, that's a really good point um, around churches being used as, you know, evacuation centres, for an example, during um, a response so, Michael, just wondering from your experience in terms of the really practical side of the work that we we all do, you know, how do you maintain um, the relationship between faith and and the programming work as such? Yeah, we're we're in a um, an unusual situation insofar as we're over a hundred years old, and Anglican missions was specifically set up as a mission, a sort of a mission-based organisation in that traditional kind of missionary sort of definition, and that we've morphed over the years into um, a growing amount of aid and development work. So we keep those two separate by um, probably 70 to 80% of our funding comes from Anglican churches, um, and that will continue. Uh, and they have the opportunity to um, specify how they would like their funding to be used. 
So we, we produce explicitly, these are the projects that we're currently supporting. And they might include, for example, supporting um, ordained ministers in the Pacific who often get paid very little of anything. So we supplement their income so that those ministers can go out and do pastoral work and lead their churches rather than having to use their spare time in growing vegetables and gardens to support their family. So that would be a kind of, I suppose, what you would traditionally call a mission-oriented type of project. And then on the other hand, we've got sort of pure you know, water and sanitation projects, which um, are just the same as any other development and aid agency. So churches can choose which of those um, on the spectrum that they'd like to support. And then there are, there are then clear budget lines and reporting mechanisms so we can separate separate out quite clearly what um, our more traditional mission-oriented sort of um, projects are from our development ones. So that's, that's, that's how we do it. And um, it hasn't really, people know where their money is going to. Um, if they don't specify, it just goes into the general pool, which includes um, obviously keeping the staff going and that kind of thing. Thank you. Yeah. And, and certainly um, for me, I, the sort of the, the language that I use, um, perhaps as an example of someone who doesn't come from a faith-based background, that it's not about separation or the compartmentalization of faith, but really it is about that proportionality within the relationship between faith and the activities. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. It's well said. So I, I wonder just on that, what, what do you think are some of the biggest assumptions that perhaps people that don't have a faith background might make about um, your organisation's identity or the work that you do? I guess one of the assumptions could be sometimes is that people might assume that funding that we raise is going to like-minded people. So Anglican churches raising money for Anglican churches. I think that's pretty common. Yeah, I, I'd say the same, that we there might be an assumption that we aren't willing to cross that, cross that bridge to people of other faiths or work comfortably in that context. Um, we are, and we do so, you know, all the time. There's an interesting tension in the Christian faith. I think people see us as, you know, surely you're on a conversion drive, but it's helpful. It's helpful to understand one thing about Christianity. Yes, we're told to make disciples, but but on the other hand, you see time and time again in the life of Jesus and the stories around him, no one's pushed. You know, and you're taught to help regardless. You know, and you see. Jesus interfaces with ten lepers. One of them comes back and acknowledges him as his savior. You know, he didn't stop. He didn't stop meeting with them and helping them. Yet, yet many of them paid no regard to who he said he was. And I think that's the example. You see it again in the Good Samaritan helping someone of a different faith. Um, you had no obligation to stop on the side of that dangerous road in that story, uh, and yet a man did. Um, and there is no, there is no payback. You know, in any sense. Um, and so once that's understood, it's easier to understand why Christians would go to dark corners of the world and help, regardless of um, what what that may mean in terms of the expansion of the Christian faith, because we're simply called simply called to do so. Um, and so maybe yeah, therein lies the misassumption that we're perhaps on a conversion drive. Yeah, I think um, I agree with um, what. Uh, Michael and Ian have said, and I think one of the most important confusions that might be is about the institutions, the Christian institutions, and and we as an NGO, we are uh, accredited as a in, uh, aid organizations, international development, and humanitarian organizations. We um, have very high standards of accountability, and. So we are meeting and working within the parameters of the international laws and within the frameworks of code of conduct. 
we have our own governance and we we follow those processes and we publish our information as well. Therefore, um, that is the main difference that we have um, that accountability and that we are not uh, part of a, we are, we are responding to those institutions rather to the more traditional Christian institutions within the uh, churches and within the um, within the bigger institution that in the past has has been linked with other um, um, aspects of the development through the colonial um, history. So I suppose that um, that can be a confusion as well. Aaron, I think there's, there's, there's one other assumption, and I think Linabel just touched on it, and that is the possibility that not so much faith-based agencies, but certainly some of the church-based agencies, there could be an assumption because we the church relies so heavily on volunteers yeah. that somehow maybe our agencies aren't quite as professional. You know, um, we might have, you know, we, we operate out of a broom cupboard type of thing and we rely on volunteers and um that, so I think there, there could be that assumption. Um, and I think the fact that, as Linnabelle said, you know, we're all now members of CID, we, 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 we have, we're code compliant, we issue international kind of best practice standards and things. But I think that's an assumption that we need to roll away and demonstrate that, in fact, we are in the same room sometimes. Yeah. And I'm just saying that on behalf of Anglican Missions. Yeah. Thank you. And, and yes, and I agree, um, Michael, you know, um, the best standards and some of those um, global standards that you mentioned as well, Linabel, you know, have been created through um, international forums, which have been led by a lot of faith-based organisations or have been significantly contributed to by um, the dialogues coming out of faith-based organisations um, as well. So thank you. Um, I want to turn um, to something that was mentioned around that sort of cross-faith engagement and um, you know, you've, it's been mentioned that you engage and partner with other non-Christian faiths or it, it's not about like for like um, as such. Just on that, I, I wondered, could you give us your thoughts on where that's perhaps could be strengthened or where it's not going quite as well? Um, I, I think what I'm talking about here is that interfaith dialogue where that's perhaps not going quite as well as it could be or could be strengthened in the work of faith-based organizations. Yeah, Aaron, I think um I'll be a bit I'll be a bit controversial here perhaps. Interfaith dialogue can perhaps try and do too much. Mm. You know, it can try and bring um faiths together in a way that bleeds out the difference, you know, and 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 look looks to looks to force alignment. Um these are different faiths on planet Earth with different founding beliefs, different structures, different ways of organising in society. Um, that part, um, that diversity in one sense needs to be um, respected. And yet I completely understand what interfaith dialogue is trying to achieve. And at its best, it's trying to tackle some of humanity's greatest problems, which are entrenched in human hearts, right, in matters of greed and and, and, and conflict and corruption, you know, over, over generosity, the common good, as I said before, and things like that. So I guess I take it to a very practical level. You know, I've worked in in, in some tough religious conflict contexts, you know, and I think back to being in Pakistan at one point. You know, it was a natural disaster, a flood, but, you know, mainly, mainly a Muslim team. Uh, I was working in a Christian charity. Um, it was a once-a-year date on the calendar to bring people together around reflection, and so, in a in a monastery with nuns running running the reflection, and then myself 
leading. You know, I reached for the Quran and then I reached for the Bible to find some common ground around the issues relevant to our work at the time. Now, for many of my Muslim staff, that was a first time in a Christian religious setting and they were nervous. But but we had prayed together at times at work, them to Allah, of course. You know, and so there was enough common ground for us to do that. And if anyone says that was overstepping the line or out of order, I guess my answer would be that was the most barrier-breaking thing we did between the religions we had um, on the team at the time, and, and it and it opened people's eyes and it, and it gave us more gave us more common ground. I did the same in Sri Lanka, where religion played straight into a civil war, and I had a Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, and Muslim staff, and that's the nature of Sri Lanka today. Um, and so the once a week spiritual reflection was led by some, by, by anyone uh, from their particular religious context. There's no way we were going to agree with necessarily everything said. Um, but but we, but we were searching for areas where we could find common, and we were respecting the difference. And maybe so. I've gone for very practical examples here, Aaron, because I perhaps have limited faith in what interfaith dialogue can achieve necessarily at the highest levels. Michael, I can see you nodding your head, um, even though this is only audio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, I was nodding my head, and I think um, it's a funny one. This one, I think, and I think um, the optics always of interfaith dialogue. Um, are more than the actual actions on the ground in my experience. Um, I have seen situations though, like Ian, where it has been such a game breaker and it has enabled greater understanding and the ability to actually implement through some pretty awkward situations. Um, but I think fundamentally, and you've only got to look at the world today, and see the number of conflicts of which some are um, driven by um, you know, just look at the conflict in northern Nigeria, where some of the where some of the conflicts are just riven and driven by faith. That um, achieving some sort of a collaboration is always going to be extremely difficult because we we occupy different ends of, of of spectrums, and I guess different faiths believe that their own is it's why we're it's why we follow who we do. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and I think it's it's not, you know, social media has helped in some ways because I think it's given us the ability to be able to understand other faith and other positions and other theologies more easily because of the amount of information. But I think it's at the same time, it's just hardened the resolve as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, at Anglican Missions, sorry, it's a funny answer, but at Anglican Missions, we... We we haven't worked very strongly in the past with other faiths, but that doesn't mean to say that we wouldn't consider it going forward. Um, I know that in emergency situations, it's inevitable at times, and that that's great, and we will certainly demonstrably try and grow that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and thanks, Michael. And touching on your point, you know, um, the, the men- reference that has been made to um, many conflicts around the world that have been driven by um, faith, um, I, I sort of it always triggers a, a thought in my head that it's always good to remember all the conflicts and genocides and historic both historically and and more recently that are driven by concerns that can be um, described as quite secular um, in their nature as well. So, um, Linda Bell, um, just turning to the work of um, sort of want to go to you with this question first because of the leadership that CBM has shown in. Um, diversity and inclusion. I'm really interested to know how faith-based organisations navigate some of the critical and sort of topical issues perhaps happening at the moment. Um, Some of the things that I'm, you know, obviously support for um, 
uh, disability is, is key within that. But I'm thinking along the lines of things like supporting LGBTQI communities, um, just as an example, but some of those topical issues that are quite critical um, at the moment. How, what's the experience of, say, CBM in terms of navigating that landscape? We have um, at CBM, we have been working very strongly in the advocacy space for uh, inclusion. And we are part of the reference group of uh, the disability inclusion, age and diversity. And with um, with these efforts, what we have been doing is ensuring that every program that we have we also are having an advocacy component. And in this advocacy component, we are working with um, the disability movement, with ground of organizations of diversity, so that their voice and their initiatives can be strengthened and amplified um, so that participation can, can be meaningful. And this is very important because of the, the discrimination that happens um, as a as a historical approach within communities to minority groups as you have mentioned and that bringing together and empowering the persons the the grassroots uh, groups is how we can uh, amplify these voices and ensure that there is inclusion and that we can have focal points to avoid that discrimination to uh, document it and, and, and bring forward the reach of these programs can can go to the most most uh, left out otherwise. And, and in it, say Tier Fund, how, how is Tier Fund um, navigating the landscape of sort of some of those very contemporary critical issues like um, gender identity and diversity and support, um, you know, which which perhaps in some contexts um, could be met with quite a conservative viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, suffice to say, it's a very, very tricky issue because yeah. in some of the more Christian contexts in which we work, say in East Africa, I mean, you have legislation underpinned by, um, at, by religious instruction, you know, that essentially discriminates. Um, and so Tefan has to walk a fine line there because that's... Um, well, frankly, that's not my personal reading of scripture, that, that we should discriminate against people on the basis of sexual identity, for example. Um, but it is how it plays out. Um, and so that that's both tricky as an aid agency from an employment perspective, and I know we'll get to that, but, but also from a public standpoint and advocacy perspective. And of course, we can only do what we can in some in certain legislative environments. I think the real challenge I have is not to the secular world, it's back to the the conservative church and why it drags its feet on these issues. Um, it should not be controversial that um, all should receive basic dignity and rights, um, reg- regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of sexual orientation. Um, that seems crystal clear to me. Um, now it's a little trickier when we open religious texts and we look at what they have to say about family, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. And so, how, you know, can we accommodate those from a conservative religious persuasions, and that is a cross-religious base, um, uh, and those more more progressive, um, but can we agree on one thing, the need, the need for rights and dignity un, under the law, and the need for that to be expressed in local communities and local religious contexts? That, that will be a perpetual conversation, and Aaron, I doubt we'll solve it in our lifetime. Yeah, look, um, I think we approach these issues... Um, uh, Gingerly, cautiously, um, but optimistically. And 
I think, you know, we uh, we represent the Anglican Church, which is a very broad church um, from, as you've seen, you know, the more conservative South often through to um, the liberal Anglican traditions. And so we kind of straddle that. So we're slightly constrained by what the church decides on these issues. And for those of you who've been following this big 10-year conference in England where all the bishops come together to discuss theology and issues. Um, this has always been an issue. Uh, for example, same-sex marriage, and um, it will continue to be for some time to come. So we kind of straddle that a little bit, but I, I guess personally, um, and from my perspective, you know, Jesus was a revolutionary, and he was always forever interested in those who were most, who were most poor and most marginalised. So that's what motivates us here in Anglican Missions. I look, I'll just take that one step further. He was accused of being a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors. If we're well, we're, well, we're sort of going with with Jesus, you know, and and pious religious positions that draw divisions in society were not his thing, you know. And 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 when you see Jesus get angry, it's to get a whip out in the temple and drive the traders from the temple. It was the exploitation of it was the exploitation of the poor um, that got under his got under his skin. So I say this because I go back to my starting point. It's faith that motivates us to act in the world. And what I see far too much of in my own Christian context is a is a, a twisting of religion and the faith to something it was never intended to be. And certainly, you know, thinking um, about um, the um, thinking about diversity and um, inclusion sort of externally to your organisations in terms of your programming. If we bring that back to how it's managed within your organisations, um, and I know from my 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 work um, that there's a lot of people who work for faith-based organisations who um, perhaps don't come from a faith background or um, have quite a different religion to to the organisation, the basis of the organisation that they might be working with. But just wondering, how do you manage diversity? Um, particular religious diversity within your own organizations um could someone who doesn't have a faith background work for your organization or someone who might overtly or not overtly identify as agnostic um or something like that could they could they work for your organizations um and how does that work in terms of a recruitment perspective <laughs> sure look and we've just gone through a recruitment exercise actually um and of course they can but i think it's what it's down to is how comfortable the person would be in working in our situation. So you would assume that anybody who wants to work in Anglican Missions would have looked at our website, seen that we're an unashamedly church and Christian-based agency, um, that part of any of what we do, because we're a small team, is often fronting up to churches and to talk to them around how their money that they have raised has been used, or if they're in the field, you know, spending time with churches in the Pacific. So I guess it's it's partly to do with how comfortable those people would be in being in that kind of situation. Um, and also knowing that, you know, um, we have prayers at, at, at work. Um, we have a chaplain here who's available if people need to discuss anything. So, so absolutely. I mean, we had many non-Christians applying for a recent role here. Um, so, yeah. Is that kind of an answer? That certainly is, Michael. And, and Lynn Bell from in, at CBM? Yes, um, we also have um, um, a complete um, inclusion in terms of um, the, the jobs are advertised and anybody can, can uh, apply uh, from 
any religion, and also we provide reasonable accommodation to ensure there are no barriers. Um, the majority, the large majority of the staff are uh, Christians. Um, we also have staff that are non-Christians. We have staff from other religions as well. And um, we find that also uh, very, um, very, very positive. Um, we we also have times for praying, but we can uh, we can maintain our conversation. As I mentioned before, we have uh, teams in other countries where we are minority as Christians, and that also provides a, another link of cross cultural um, identity and capacity to engage, and it just brings. Uh, uh, positives as well. But I think one important matter is how um, the organizations, um, particularly in New Zealand, and if we look, I, I was in the, I was a deputy um, chair in the Seed uh, Humanitarian Network for uh, three years and till now, uh, there has been quite a big move to, um, for the NGOs to move from the humanitarian response to incorporate it much more broadly in a practice of development. In other words, the um, organizations are embedding much more preparedness, uh, work in advance, engagement with the key stakeholders in the ground. And this is fundamental to be able to reach uh, minority groups, including diversity, gender, LGTB, persons with disabilities. Because if there is no engagement in in the peacetime, if there is no um, networking, uh, understanding what the priorities are, identification of these groups in that disaster time, it will be very difficult to reach them. It will be very difficult to have the time and the agility to understand what the barriers might be and to and to provide programmatic efforts directed to bring those people in and to reach them as well. So I think this is something that as a sector has been quite an important progress and that also makes um, the humanitarian um, the humanitarian work much more meaningful as well, having a much more lasting impact as well. Thanks, Lunabel. And, and Ian, from um, T-Fund, like the sort of the incorporation of diversity within the organisation and um, how it may may play out in a recruitment sense? Yeah, I actually think it's very important for faith-based organisations to maintain uh, a high degree of mm. diversity. Um, I equally think it's important that they maintain their their faith. Um, I don't want to be in a conservative Christian echo chamber in my own organisation. It doesn't help me talk with government, doesn't help me cross religious barriers. Um, it'll, it'll, it'll position me at one end of the spectrum on, on a whole bunch of issues. So, so we have staff who of no Christian faith, no faith. We have staff of other faiths at Tearfund. Um, we have staff of other um, sexual orientation. So, um, so frankly, I want to I want diversity in the workforce. Uh, it, chal it challenges the insular faith mindset that we can all get into if all our friends are from our from our place of worship, um, um, and it keeps us keeps us on honest in in that regard. Uh, but I do want to live out the Christian expression of tear fund, uh, and so I also have to maintain for that in the balance um, across the team and across the leadership team as well. Thanks, Ian. Um, as we sort of um, sort of conclude the conversation and, and um, sort of draw the conversation to, to a close, I'm really interested um, to know from you personally um, 
what is your own journey um, of faith or testimony? Is that the word we use, Michael? I'm, I, I, we had a conversation previously. Um, yeah, that's a very uh, good yep, theological and, Christian word. And, and, and what, what is the relationship of your faith to the work that you do? Um, you know, is there a direct line between your faith or your religious background and how you ended up working within development or emergency response uh, sector? Well, yes, there is, absolutely. Um, my faith undergirds everything I do and all that I am. Um, I came from a church background, but it wasn't really until my late teens, early 20s that I actually began to take that seriously when I was at university. And it was largely based on, um, it just suddenly occurred to me, I had always been interested in development and humanitarian work, even though I trained as a town planner. I had hoped to use my town planning in a kind of a developing country context. But it wasn't really until it suddenly struck me just what a revolutionary and a liberator that Jesus really was that I thought um, this can undergird my interest in development. And it certainly has continued to. Um, in fact, that's just got stronger and stronger over the years. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's part of part of who I am. And I'm proud to say that I'm also a um an ordained Anglican minister. So um, that for me, you know, I've found the perfect job, mate. I've got the perfect, perfect <laughs> job. I can combine my faith with my passion and my experience and my interest in the development and humanitarian sector. So I'm one of those lucky ones, eh? Linda Bell. Sure. Um, well, I have um, I have been raised in a in Mexican Catholic family. And um, I have been in New Zealand for 15 years. Um, even, I'm sure you have uh, picked my accent sometime. <laughs> so, yes, I was in a very, very conservative uh, uh, Catholic upbringing. But I also was always working um, in my young years uh, for the indigenous rights and within the movements in the faith-based movements. Um, I was trying to to work much more in terms of incidents in policy making, and I didn't. I couldn't. I needed to find a different language that could cross path, and I found the kingdom of heaven um, in the definition on sustainable development. And to me, that where that was a very practical way where I could communicate across and make it policy change, and so I have been going towards that. Uh, with that mission within, of course, is my faith that is taking me there. And But I was living for um, five years overseas doing my studies on development in England and then uh, working for the UN. And I I think it's very important to, um, to see that journey because um, it is, it is, it is now the current, the current, discussions that the Pope is bringing in terms of indigenous people, in terms of um, all their misconceptions that have been politicized around uh, faith and politics in the past um, are being discussed a lot more broadly. And when I see this and I see uh, in New Zealand how the generous, generous community of Christians that keep on providing support to these humanitarian and development organizations. And they are working. They are working and having a tremendous impact overseas. Um, we have experienced how 
um, with our donor communication, our supporters communication, when we started going to places like the Rohingya crisis or very Muslim settings or different settings, um, they, they, they were, there was di dialogue because in some of our uh, Christian organization have a history starting with a pastor or with a missionary approach initially. And they have grown and gone beyond these uh, Christian settings to much more responding to the to the context where the need is today. And when I see that um, how Christians have also gone into the journey, question themselves, question, talk a dialogue to us, but then. I, Okay, yeah, then I can also provide support for others. I'm being very clear of this. And I just find this uh, fascinating. And it really motivates me to see that engine be behind with these Christian communities. Thank you. And Ian, yourself? Um... Our, we've all got such unique stories in this regard, but I really, um, I really resonate with this. I mean, my father was a Presbyterian minister. Now, he died at the age of 47. I was only 14. Um, I probably spent the next few years a bit sort of in the wilderness, if you like. I, I jumped school, built buses. I did various jobs. Um, I became a Christian youth worker, and I guess the common thread there with both my mother and my father was a desire to help people. Um, and it led me ultimately to this work, um, somewhere in the middle of, that, of, of working with challenging young people in the outdoor pursuits. I ran into folks in the north of England who, when they weren't mountain guides and, and on the lakes in the Lake District, with challenging young people, they were in Afghanistan and Pakistan for Tear Fund in the UK, running running disaster response teams, negotiating with the Taliban the first time around to get their teams released. And I, I, I found the stories very, very interesting. And, and I wanted to do this type of work. And then when I read, but I spent many of those years very frustrated with the church. I'd grown up in the church. Church seemed quite insular, seemed to care about itself, did seem to have a limited reach into the neighbourhood. And I guess I decided I wanted to be a part of an expression of church and Christianity that reached beyond itself. And that is the most common theme that's stuck with me in life. If a church consumes all its resources uh, for its parishioners and its pastor, and that's the extent of its view, it will collapse. Because actually, church is a one, church is a one member organisation and it's a society that exists not for its members but for its non-members. That was the gospel I read in the Bible. You know, Jesus was, was not for his own. He was for those beyond. And, and, and so um, for me, it's been the search ever since, for I guess for a faith that reaches um, out and beyond um, a, a generosity that extends well beyond ourselves, offshore, and, in, and into some of the more challenging contexts that humanity um, faces. So I very much have adopted that for my mother and my father, Aaron, but I, I very much, have, um, you know, affiliate with what Michael, you know, uh, and Linda Bell have said in terms of what, what's brought them to this place. Thank, thank you all so much. Um, a very last random question. Um, let's say a scenario, you have an hour to submit a challenging funding proposal following what has been a long and challenging negotiation. Um, what song, musical artist do you put on, turn up loud and give you that last burst of energy and motivation? Um, it can be either a Christian or non-Christian band, Michael, to begin with. Oh, this is the question. Um, I am going for Midnight Oil. I first heard them in 1982 at the Albert Pub in Palmerston North. I've heard them many, many times since. I'm going to hear them next week in Wellington. And they're great bands of vacuum too, but also if you are, if you are making a, a, a generous funding application with, say, 
Christian Blind Mission and Tear Fund, hint, hint, they would be the band that I would have on in the background. Fantastic. And, and you, Ian, do you have a, a, a go-to? Oh, well, look, I'm a, I'm a product of the 80s, um, so, you know, it's going to be dire straits for me. You know, look, I'm, money for nothing would be the obvious choice oh, for the charity yes. sector, but I will, I will go with Telegraph Road because it's long enough to write a proposal application from end to end. Thank you. And Lynn about yourself. Hi, I think I for me it's um my music is a little bit um out not so much on the Western music, but um and it is in Spanish, but it translates as missionary soul. And I that's something that I really um resonate it some resonates with me a lot for for the meaning behind. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. For me, if I can throw mine in, it's probably um Kate Bush's Hounds of Love album. I can't go past that. So um I, I'm, you know, I'm sort of here trying to figure out how I, I sum this conversation up, and I, I think it's it's impossible. Um, but um, I, I just want to thank you all. Um, you know, um, Linda, I particularly love um, the um, the phrase you use in terms of finding the kingdom kingdom of heaven and sustainable development because that reminds me that you know quite often we're talking about the same things but just using a different language so you know we're certainly um it feels like we've touched upon a um a topic that is huge and has many uh threads that we could follow but um certainly listening to you all and being inspired by the work that you do um would really like to thank you for that and thank you for being part of this um podcast thank you Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Great discussion. Lovely to be with you both, Linabel and Ian and Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, everyone. It has been great to be discussing today. And yeah, um, it's a very good opportunity um, to engage. And, you know, we're engaging both with Christian and non-Christian community. Um, And it is is, wonderful to have this opportunity. Thank you for listening to Useful Outsiders. Please subscribe, share, rate and review and help us to spread the word. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. You can find our email in the episode notes. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.